Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. This episode was originally recorded as a weekly live in the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition group on Facebook. If you'd like to join these lives, watch past replays, or get any of the written summaries I do for these weekly, please head to the link in the show notes, drop me a comment, I'm happy to help you out. Now, let's get on with the episode. Hi everyone. First, I have an announcement before we really get into interval training. There is a challenge that I'm doing that is going to start next Monday. I announced it to my email list already, so if you're on there, you've heard this. If not, great. Um, but we're going to be starting this coming Monday on June 13th. There will be a kickoff Zoom call that I stream directly into the Facebook group like I'm doing right now, and here are the basics. It's 21 days long. It'll be so three weeks. The winner of the challenge will get $500, and the winner will be t- determined by participation. You don't have to be a great runner. You don't have to do anything big to win. You just have to show up and do the work. There's no catch. I'm going to give you things to do to help you figure out hydration and nutrition and strength training things for you. You're going to do the work. If you do all the work, you have a chance to win. The end. And why? Really the same reason that I do these weekly lives and create free free guides and spend time on social media to help people do more, help people have more fun doing hard shit better. That's it. I entered the fitness industry to help people and it's because I watched my dad get very sick and die and I wanted to help people be healthier. And very honestly, it turned out that the like healthier space wasn't really my place. Because let's be real, nobody really wants to talk to you about getting healthier. We want to talk about getting strong or jacked or uh, losing weight. And as a former fat kid who still experiences fairly high level of body dysmorphia, I just don't want to spend all day talking about weight loss. So just as I get frustrated with that side of the industry, like just as I was getting frustrated with that side of the industry, I kind of fell ass backwards into the ultra marathon trail running space. I got volunteered for um, a race and was sitting at the last aid station 40 out of 50, 45 miles and about half the people who came by were just wrecked. And it mostly it was mostly because they were dehydrated or their nutrition was off. They'd been vomiting for the past 20 miles. So I helped who I could and a lot of them finished and most of them just gritted it through. But I talked to some of them afterwards and a lot of it came down to like just a couple tips that got them those last five miles. And then I helped someone train to summit Everest and he didn't just make it, he crushed it. So it seemed like I fell into a knack for endurance nutrition thing. And so I coached a couple people for free. It continued to go well and I just kept leaning into it because I just really want to help and I enjoy it and y'all are fun to work with. So in my mid-20s, I was a middling athlete, um, but I could have been a lot better. And most of that came down to overtraining, incorrect training, underfueling, a complete lack of sleep or absence of any <laughs> real recovery. I had so much drive, but I just had no fucking idea what I was doing, if we're going to be really blunt. And I've somehow fallen into this place full of people who have so much drive, and I just want to help because I get it. You want to do hard stuff. 
And there's a special kind of fun that comes from suffering from hard stuff. And I just want to help you do that better. So that's why I'm running a challenge. And that's why there's a $500 cash prize, because I actually want you to do it. And money talks. So join the challenge. It's free. Worst case, you spend a couple weeks dialing in your hydration and your nutrition, learning some recovery strategies, and you get a few free strength training programs out of it. Best case, you do all of that, and you win $500. So happy day. If you want in, message me. Email me, text me, Facebook message me, comment on this video. I don't care. Registration closes on the 12th of June when I go to sleep. I'm going to be talking about this until then. It might be annoying. Sorry. Message me anytime before then, and I will get you the info. I hope you do it. I hope your friends do it too. Invite everyone you know. Then just outwork them for three weeks so you win the money. Cool. Enough for today. Thanks for being here. I hope you see all the challenge. So let's talk about intervals. Why do intervals at all? Well, intervals are going to be speed training. So intervals are not like a run-walk cycle, right? Like if we're looking at intervals, yes, that is technically an interval. You are doing a harder piece of work matched with an easier piece of work. But that's not what we mean when we talk about intervals. When I'm talking about intervals, we're talking about speed training um, or trying to build a like bigger upper engine, right? So why do intervals? Why not just run faster? Well, it is largely to create a bigger training stimulus while minimizing injury. In general, when it comes to training, you are always trying to create some sort of adaptation. You tell the body to do something it's not very good at doing, and it needs to get better at doing that thing. You could frame it as your body thinking, I was bad at that. I need to get better at that in case we do it again. So it makes the changes necessary to get better at whatever it was. So you can't, but that said, you can't overstimulate it or you just get injured. You can't try and pick up your first deadlift at 600 pounds and expect to immediately be able to do that or to do it next time. You're just going to tear your back out, right? So think, we can think further about lifting. If I want to be able to squat more weight, I have to practice squatting more weight. It doesn't mean I have to max out every time I squat, but I have to do something challenging enough to signal my muscles to adapt. If I start squatting five pounds, that's great. But pretty quickly, that's going to become fairly easy. And once that's fairly easy, then there's no longer a signal that I have to get stronger. I have to make the signal bigger. And there's multiple ways to make the lifting, make lifting harder. Lifting heavier is one of them. You could do more reps, you could slow down, you could challenge it in one of many ways. But you have to make it challenging for it to work. And this is true of all training. In most training, volume is arguably the biggest factor in creating change, to some degree. So if we're looking at creating change for our cardiovascular system, and we're going to get into this in a second, you have to target the specific piece of your cardio system that you want for a big chunk of time. And those who are able to target that system more are going to make bigger amounts of change. There is a reason that most Olympic athletes are my rings driving me nuts. So there's a reason that most Olympic athletes train for six plus hours a day, because the more they can put into that system, the bigger it's going to be. There's a reason that the Nordic um, 
system of just doing zone two all day <laughs> after the last Olympics took off because it was really successful because they just cranked the volume. And it's not super novel. If you're able to crank a bunch of volume without getting injured, then you're probably going to get better at whatever you've been practicing doing. It just makes sense. So if we are looking at improving our VO2 max, right? That is like our high end. That is great. And if you can hold 10 minutes at a pace that really tests your VO2 max, that's terrible and impressive and really stressful, like really stressful. You could also do four rounds of three minutes with rest periods in between. And in the end of that, you actually get more stimulus, 12 minutes instead of 10. Your quality will almost certainly be higher um, because by the time you finish the end of 10 minutes straight of VO2 max work, you're going to want to die. Whereas by the time you finish four rounds of three of VO2 max work, you can probably still push pretty hard. And you will risk less injury. And further, you won't have to recover as long between sessions. So while the individual session might take longer due to the, pardon me, rest periods in between, that is the really only negative. You can do two to three sessions per week instead of just one, and you can just stack volume and train more. So volume isn't just higher in that one training session, it's also higher throughout the week and higher throughout whatever training block you're doing. And that is the point of intervals. To do a lot more, better quality work with a much lower risk of injury, right? So why do intervals look different? And why do we have 15 minutes versus one minute versus three minutes? To understand that, we probably need to get a little bit into the weeds about human physiology. Not going to do this for too long. Um, and I'm actually just going to steal someone's from this book. It is Scientific Training for Endurance Athletes by uh, Philip Verskiba. is amazing. If you want to understand this stuff, read this book. So in it, he compares the human athlete to a house where your, the floor is your general strength and resilience. You need this to even get going. If you're not strong enough to run or not have enough bone strength to run, then you're just going to fall apart, right? Like you need to be able to do that. And then your height inside the house is like race-specific performance ability. He compares it to a marathoner. This would be about lactate threshold for most marathoners. For ultra runners, it's probably a little lower than that, but eh, somewhere in there. The ceiling of the house would be what's called your critical power or speed. This is a very important physiological threshold line. It is very important for people who are trying to do um, like half marathons and marathons. It is relevant for those of us trying to run long trail distances, but not quite as much. And the reason critical power or critical speed matters so much is theoretically, if you were going slower than critical speed, you could maintain that speed basically forever. Someone would need to feed you, water you, and prevent your muscles from overheating, all of which are very real barriers, and you're not going to prevent all those from happening. But you theoretically could maintain that speed forever. Realistically, you could maintain it for a pretty long time. Let's call it a couple hours. And then the attic above your ceiling is your VO2 max. If you're working above critical speed, you will eventually encounter your VO2 max. It doesn't matter how long, it'll just happen. 
If you're going a little bit above critical speed, it'll happen a little slower. If you're going way above critical speed, it'll happen a little faster, but it will happen. You will encounter VO2 max, and you're, then you're on a like ticking time bomb of falling apart. You can't breathe, kind of can't intake oxygen anymore. You're not able to fuel your muscles appropriately. In very, you hear different things about whether VO2 max is worth training. In very highly trained athletes, it is true that you're not gonna make too many improvements to VO2 max much, if at all. And in most of us everyday athletes though, you can absolutely make improvements and pretty big ones and it doesn't take a lot of time. It sucks that training for it is unpleasant, um, but you can absolutely do it and it is worth doing if you have the time to do it. And then the roof of your house or like your cupola or whatever you want to think of it as is your like peak power output. So the absolute power you could put out if you need to. So these are our physiological systems and different intervals will train different pieces of this. So some people will talk about testing these things, testing your VO2 max, going to a lab, strapping your face to a bunch of hoses and seeing where it is. And if it's worth, is it worth testing? Maybe it is probably not worth testing um, by strapping yourself into a bunch of la into a lab unless you have access and really want to know. Um, you can do really well with a couple field tests that will tell you all you need to know. And further, one time it is definitely not worth testing is if you're new to training. When you're new, it doesn't matter what you do. A rising tide lifts all ships, pretty much always when it comes to training, and especially when you're new. If you're really new, no matter what you do, everything's going to get better. As you become better trained, the opposite becomes true. Then you, while everything is going to kind of get better, some stuff's going to get better way faster if you're training it. So this is one we might want to test for a couple reasons depending where you are. One, you've been hitting a plateau and you're not quite sure why. In this case, testing something like the difference between your VO2 and your critical VO2 max and your critical speed could be very useful. Say you do a VO2 max test and you find that your VO2 max is terrible in comparison to your critical speed. And it's a pretty clear sign that you really need to work on that. Um, say you do a VO2 max test and find that it's actually pretty high, but your critical speed is really low. Then you know you need to work on raising that threshold. Right? And those are different training. Different training will raise those two. They will always raise, almost always, almost always raise together. But if you're on a limited time scale or you've been really struggling or one of them is proportionally way worse than the other, you might want to target one over the other. So problem with these tests, as I said before, is they're often like really expensive or require a bunch of laboratory equipment. Um, but you can do some like pretty good field tests. So. The other issue is when you do these field tests, they're almost always done on flat ground. If you do them on hills, things get really weird because you're, as you notice, they were critical speed or your velocity at VO2 max is what you're going to get from your field tests, which are perfectly fine if you're training for something like a marathon. However, if you're training for something like, you know, I was just talking to one of my athletes, so the, the I am tough up in, um, the I am tough, which happens in September and has 25,000 feet of gain. If we're training for that and training on a bunch of mountains, then our critical speed over flat ground, probably not going to matter all that much because it's going to be really different than when we're throwing you at a 20% grade. 
right? These are just going to be different. So if you do a bunch of work on hills and need to do a bunch of work on hills, testing these things might not be relevant. That said, if you do a lot of races on flat ground or do a bunch of uh, backyards um, on a flat course, these could be a game changer. You'll know exactly how fast you need to go to elicit changes in something like VO2 max because anything above that velocity will elicit a change. And faster will not necessarily elicit a bigger change. So you can train with less risk of injury. Cool. So the longer you've been training, the more this matters, but it still needs to fit you and your end goals. Now, this is where I would say like all of your training should have a purpose. And that purpose could be anything. It could be, I'm trying to build my VO2 max, so I have a bigger tank to pull from. It could be, I'm trying to build my aerobic base or just my endurance, right? It could be, I enjoy it. <laughs> like, I like doing this kind of training. It could be, I'm still in my first couple years of training and it doesn't make a fuck what I do. As long as I do something, I'm going to keep getting better. All of that is fine, but you should know why you're doing something instead of just going after it, or you should pay someone who knows why they're doing something, right? Like, should be a purpose to your workouts. Every time you go out there and push hard, you risk getting injured, so there should be a reason you're doing that. Now, for example, one common thing that happened that I see sometimes on ultra training plans is like a one minute on, one minute off interval scheme. It's not a particularly beneficial workout for most people in this space. If you are very new, then short equal work to rest repeats can be great to develop VO2 max. We're talking like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, one minute on, one minute off. Again, if you are very new, then those can help a lot. But if you've been training for a little while or you have a pretty big athletic background, there are much better ways to achieve that goal. You would get much more out of longer two to four minute work to rest intervals. If you're trying to build VO2 max and you've been training for a while, your work intervals should be somewhere in the two, probably minimum three to five work range. And your rest should be anywhere from two to the same as your effort, right? So two to five minutes. There's nothing wrong with one on one off. It's just not exactly ideal, especially if you're well-trained. It feels really hard, but doesn't help you make a bunch of changes if you've been training for a while. If you like it, that's great. That said, I try to avoid really hard stuff that doesn't make me a lot better, partially because I just don't have the time to do it. So I feel fairly similarly about ladder or stair intervals. I like one minute hard, rest period, two minute hard, rest period, three minute hard, rest period, four minute hard, et cetera, right? And my big issue with these is how hard are we actually going for those intervals? Are you trying to keep the same pace for minute like one as you are for those like five minute chunk at the end? Are you trying to gas out at the end of every interval? Either way can have its own purpose, but it needs to be defined and you need to be clear about why you're doing the workouts. If you are trying to gas out at the end of every interval, then that first interval where you're doing like a one minute long is actually gonna do something slightly different than what you do in that five minute interval because they're gonna be a different pace, they're gonna be a different effort, right? So this is kind of why we end up with this problem. And that brings me 
to like how to construct specific intervals for specific things. We already talked about VO2 max a little bit. If we're looking at creating VO2 max intervals for a decently trained athlete, I actually really like Jason Koop's work for this, and it's just a series of two to four minute intervals with equal work to rest. You'll want to do 10 to 30 minutes of total work. So if you're doing three minute intervals, you'll do anywhere from like four to 10 rounds. 10 rounds is brutal. That is for like a professional athlete. Most people do really well with five to six. That is how you're gonna improve your VO2 max. And do like a three week block of this, two to three sessions in the first week, probably two in the second, and then one to two in the third. And it's gonna kind of taper down. And then you're done. And you've put a big stimulus to your VO2 max. You might do this again if you're on a year-long training cycle. But if you have about six months to get ready for your race, that's all you're going to do. You're going to boost this at the beginning and get it rolling. It's an intense phase during VO2 training. I don't tend to include a whole lot of things like strength. I make it optional. If you are going to do strength, this is where we would really target that 10 to 15 or maybe even 15 to 20 rep range, really looking for a pump and building some of these like smaller muscles and blood flow, right? Like this is actually where I really like to use stuff like TRX or suspension trainers or isometrics because they don't do as much damage to the muscles. And that's how I will pair strength work with a VO2. And then if you're going to do it, commit to it, do it hard and get it over with. You want this to be far away from your goal race because it's just not that relevant. You need that upper ceiling to work into, but it's not like you're going to be pushing into VO2 max during your goal race. So if you get a if you get enough of a boost, increase it a little bit, and then have more to work with for the rest of your training cycle, it's really all you need. You don't need to like constantly replenish this. If it falls off a bit, that's fine. Most very high-level marathoners, they actually see a drop in VO2 max typically throughout a season and throughout a career, but everything else that increases tends to make up for it. So I do about a three to four week block, about four to six months out from a race, call it a day. If you come to me with any less time from that, you might not actually do them at all. You might just miss VO2 max training unless you just deeply need it. It is not a high priority if you're going to come to me like three months out from your 100 miler. Probably not going to do it. It's just not going to be a big thing we target. And then there's also what we've talked about max power, so like above VO2 max, it's like how much power you can generate. And they'll talk about this through strength training or plyos or short hill repeats. Strides are actually a way you would do this. We're really looking to build like pure speed, pure power. And this is gonna be short, explosive bursts of effort that are not designed to tire you out. You are going to put everything you have into a what we call like a speed interval. And a stride would be a slow, like, five-second ramp up to top speed. You're going to hold that for about 20 seconds, and then you're going to bring that back down, maybe even 15 seconds, right? Like, it is not a long thing. It is not a hard effort, but you're putting everything you have into it. And then you're slowing down. And then you're going to rest for, like, a minute and a half to two minutes and do it again. You do maybe four to six of those throughout a workout. They should not be tiring. They should feel good. It should feel like your legs got to open up. Box jumps are another way to bring power. Again, I often see people do these for like on the box, off the box, on the box, off the box to make yourself tired. That is not the point. 
The point of a box jump is to create power, pardon me, get to the top of the box, and then redo it. Same thing with like 20 second hill repeats. Drive up the hill, walk yourself back down, drive up the hill, walk yourself back down. You're trying to build that power. And I actually include this throughout training in one way or another. And it's not, because it's not exceptionally stressful. If used correctly, it has a high potential to degrade quickly, and it can be kind of fun. Uh, me and a lot of people I coach seem to find strides to be actually somewhat enjoyable. So that's why we keep them in. Now, you can train critical speed, but it's going to go up a lot with your VO2 max. It's kind of a weird, tedious thing to hit, so I often skip it. You can also see a bunch of improvement through these through longer, um, like sub-maximal efforts of like 30 to 40 minutes. So if you insert these 30 to 40 minute pushes through your uh, long runs on the weekend, you can actually push your critical speed up a little bit, and it just feels like you're having fun in the mountains, which is always one of my big targets. Enjoy your long run, right? And another way you can target critical speed would be intervals just slightly longer than the VO2 max ones. So like five minutes to say five to eight minutes um, with a little less rest. And that's how you might target that. It is really tough to do that without knowing a number or doing it on flat ground. Um, or you're very likely to end up slightly too low and target lactate or slightly too high and target VO2 max. It's kind of a sweet spot. That's why I, one of the reasons I don't tend to specifically target it. It's kind of hard to hit, especially for most trail runners, and you can just have more fun and maybe get a side benefit of doing it anyway. And then finally, you're going to spend a good amount of time doing intervals that focus on lactate. Lactate is a fuel. Lactic acid is not really a real thing in your body. It doesn't last. Lactate is what you make. And... It is a fuel that your body uses very well, especially when you're tired. But when you get really tired, you make too much of it. And for all the lactate you make, you also make a bunch of hydrogen ions, and that just makes your muscles really sore, that burny feeling. So if we can teach your muscles and body to use lactate better and have a better lactate turnover, you will get a lot faster and have a lot more endurance at a faster pace. So this is why most runners from half marathoners to marathoners to ultra runners should do a good amount of time on lactate intervals. And that's probably going to be four to six weeks, really. They provide a ton of benefit. Um, and it has a like side crossover to altitude training because if you go from lower, like near sea level, to higher altitude, you are actually going to produce more lactate so even more reason to learn to use it better. So these intervals, I mean, they're longer. So instead of uh, like these short three to fives, you're actually doing something more like 10 to 20. And then um, like a two to one work to rest ratio. So for example, might be 12 minutes on, six minutes off. You'll do three or four rounds of that, right? Like that'd be a very reasonable difficult but reasonable lactate interval. And you want to find a pace that allows you to get to the end and still feel fine, but worked. You could keep going, but you probably don't want to. It's like an eight out of 10 on a difficulty scale, maybe a nine for the last rep, right? 
if you get to the end of the 12 minutes and you are just wrecked, you went too hard. If you get to the end of the 12 minutes and you, well, if you don't get to the end of the 12 minutes, you went too hard. If you get to the end of the 12 minutes and you think you could do another 12 minutes, you didn't go hard enough. You should get to the end and you're like, okay, glad that's done and I get to rest now. That's kind of where that should, where that lactate interval should be. And then you get plenty of rest in between to hit it again. You don't technically need to rest for half the rest period. So if you're doing a 12-6, you actually could probably get away with closer to two to three minutes of rest. But seriously, just make sure your muscles feel good so you can hit it hard. The purpose of the rest period is to give yourself enough um, regeneration so you can actually put the full effort into the next set. If you feel like you can do that, great. Go for it. Your regeneration period's faster than mine. I usually feel kind of torched for until like minute four. Sweet. So where should you do these? I often do them on a treadmill, partially because my training has to happen in the middle of the day and I work at a gym and that's where it is. Um, my big advice though, do not do them going downhill. As I discussed a couple weeks ago, I am a proponent of downhill training if you have the option, but you're not going to do well trying to do your interval work downhill for a couple reasons. Downhill makes it easier on your cardiovascular system, which is not what you want, um, and it makes it harder on your muscles and joints, which is not what you want. You are trying to create cardiac adaptations here. So actually, if you can get it a little uphill, that would be ideal. Um, unless you primarily do flat races, then you might consider doing almost all flat training for terrain specificity, but uphill intervals will give you a bigger bang for your buck in, in the cardio department while actually being a lot kinder to your joints and muscles. And to be clear, we're not trying to talk like 25% grade. None of us here are Killian Jornet. We're talking like three to eight, three to 8%, maybe 10 if you're really good. Um, and that's where you do your intervals, right? You wanna be able to push hard enough, um, but you want the limiting factor to be your cardio, not your quads or your glutes, right? So that's kind of your limiter there. Cool. So that's kind of what I have for intervals. We have different systems. The reason you do intervals is to stack more volume in a shorter period of time to limit your risk for injury. You want to probably, if you have the time, I would spend some time doing VO2 max intervals five-ish months out from your race. If you don't have that kind of time, I would definitely try to get some lactate intervals in and then we could do, and then I would almost always include something like strides or hill repeats for pure power and speed. And then we want to scale that in relation to training, right? These are the very basic summary of intervals. So if you have any questions, please pop them in the chat. I think I can still see them. Again, I'm still figuring out this Zoom to Facebook thing, but everything looks normal on my end. And then if you, I have a couple questions from the group that I'm gonna to try to answer here. So question number one comes from Fabi, is poles or no poles? And this is a great question. Um, somebody just did a very long, a couple people actually just did a very long thing on poles. I think one of them was Jason Coop. Um, I think Brody Sharp from Run Smarter actually did a, did a whole thing on polls recently too. The short answer is, let's just talk about what polls do, I guess, is really the answer. So polls will make you less efficient. They weigh 
something, right? So they're going to cost you a little more to get up and downhill. What they do is take some effort off of your legs and allow you to disperse that throughout your entire body. So instead of being our like stupid primate body where we only move on two limbs, we become a horse, right? Like we could frame it that way. You are dispersing all of the effort through all of your limbs so that your legs are not getting beat up as much. If your race is flatter, you absolutely don't need them. You can use them. Uh, some races won't even allow them. Um, it's more of a thing in the States from what I understand. I've never raced internationally, so I have no idea. But apparently it's much more common abroad. So that said, if you have really steep ups and downs, poles can be super helpful because the big limiter there, especially on the downs, is going to be your quads. And the big limiter on the ups, for a lot of people, is going to be their cardio. But if you have your really good cardio engine, but you just don't have very strong glutes, it's going to be muscular as well. So we can use poles, hit it up and down really effectively if you have a bunch of steep terrain to go over. Okay? Um, so that's what poles are for. Or to take some of the effort off of your legs and put it across all four of your limbs. It is not a like big cardio booster as much as it's going to be a muscular help. And the one thing I would definitely say is do not use poles unless you have time and ability to practice with them. They are a skill. They are a tool, just like you shouldn't get new uh, shoes right on race day and you shouldn't try new whatever on your race day. You shouldn't try new gear, period, on your race day. Poles fall in that category. And it probably falls in that category by a couple of weeks rather than, I don't know, a couple of days. You should be able to practice with your poles. And if you're going to go use them on hills, it's slightly different than using them on flats. But if you don't have the option to go to hills and use them, at the very least, go out to a local trail and figure out how to time them with your feet. Because you don't want to be causing yourself to trip. You want it to be nice and smooth. So if you're going to use them, Figure out how to use them really smoothly. So figure out how to like, there's different strategies. You can look them all up on YouTube. I'm not a big pole person. I'm not really good enough to justify it yet, if we're going to be honest. So I have never really played with them. I wasn't a big user when I was a hiker. But there's a bunch of different strategies you can use for them. And you want to be able to feel comfortable with the flow so that you're not stabbing yourself or somebody else in the foot. And then the other thing about poles is just be conscious of them. They are a big stick, <laughs> sometimes on single track. So you might hit trees, you might get yourself caught, or you might stab someone else. So if you're going to use them, just be polite, right? Now, that is what I have on polls from Shane. I also had the question, how many days a week should be strength training for a race? And I mentioned this in the group, and this was said a little... Um, this is just a general question to cover, and I'm actually going to link my strength training talk that I did forever ago here, because this goes a little more in-depth. But how many days a week should you be strength training in rel relation to your race? Depends how close you are to your race and what else you're doing, and then what kind of strength training phase you're in. So the closer you are to the race, the less you should be doing. 
period, your training should be ramping up, your volume should be so high, and your strength training, like if you're not strong enough to do the race by the time you're five weeks out from the race, it probably isn't going to matter. Um, I'm a strength person. <laughs> it's my whole background. It is, I excel at that, and I still am going to cut it like six weeks out from a race for the most people. It just makes sense. And you not cut it completely. You might move to like TRX body weight and some like mobility stuff, but we're going to stress mobility far more than we are trying to get stronger. Um, and then if we are looking nine months out, this is where we might actually do a really low rep, almost think like powerlifting, heavy lifting kind of work, where if you pick up really heavy stuff for reps of like two to six, this is where you might do this period. Um, far out from your race. And unless you're very well-versed at strength training, I wouldn't do this um, mixed within another training block because it's just really stressful. Stress is stress is stress. So you don't want to do a bunch of heavy lifting while you're doing VO2 max work, period. You don't want to, most people, most people don't want to be doing heavy lifting while they're doing lactate work. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And then we just need to take care of like the general general balance. So it depends what your strength training looks like. It depends what your race is and it depends everything, right? But basically one to two is the like really easy answer for how much strength training you should probably be doing period while you're training for an ultra. If you're a little more in the off season and you have a little more time to dedicate, then you can do that. But otherwise it is very much one to two. For a lot of people, it's going to just be one. And it means you're not going to build a lot of strength um, unless your program's really good. So you should have a good strength program if you're going to use it. And I see Ross commented over here. Pull's been great aid in my hiking. For me, I can see a large elevation. Yep, exactly. That is exactly what they're, what they're for. Thanks, Ross. I appreciate it. All right, y'all. That is all I see. I don't see any more comments or questions. Thank y'all for being here and uh, sticking with me for this test one of the Zoom thing. And I'm going to figure out how to shut this down. And I will be back later in the week. And I'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian, and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.